sand My spirit is broken But not my hands To write these lines In the sand Deceivers Fields of sand from where I stand. My ships are gone, but the sea will carry me. Under your skies, deceivers.
tarde e bem-vindos à edição número 10 de Time Out Uma edição particularmente especial, não por ser a décima Mas porque pela primeira vez, e espero que não a última Vamos ter uma convidada com quem eu tive o prazer de gravar uma entrevista há alguns dias Mas não for revelar mais nada para já, vai ficar como surpresa para a segunda hora Entretanto, abrimos a edição de hoje com os finlandeses Swallow the Sun, um tema do seu penúltimo e triplo álbum Songs from the North, neste caso um tema do segundo disco, intitulado Pray for the Winds to Come. Os Swallow the Sun são oriundos da Finlândia, como eu disse, e praticantes de doom death metal progressivo, mas também ocasionalmente com apontamentos mais folk e acústicos, como foi o caso do tema que ouvimos. E eu quero trazer mais um tema deles, do álbum que lançaram no início deste ano, intitulado When a Shadow is Forced into the Light, um trabalho que lida com a morte de Alia Starbridge, a companheira do vocalista, que faleceu em abril de 2016, vítima de cancro. É um álbum que, pela dor palpável que lhe está subjacente, é de uma intensidade emocional enorme e é também um dos favoritos deste ano da nossa convidada de hoje. Vamos por isso ficar então com Never Left, o tema que encerra este mais recente e aclamado trabalho dos Swallow the Sun.
e o tema Never Left do álbum When a Shadow is Forced into the Light Bom, e a espera de 13 anos para um novo trabalho do Stool, como já tínhamos aqui referido está finalmente a terminar no início do mês, Maynard James Keenan o vocalista durante uma entrevista no programa de Joe Rogan, anunciou o nome do novo álbum e também a chegada do catálogo do Stool aos serviços de streaming de onde sempre estiveram afastados por decisão da própria banda Existem de facto ainda alguns artistas, todos eles habitualmente com algum estatuto, que continuam ausentes dos serviços de streaming, numa atitude de protesto contra, por um lado, as receitas quase insignificantes que a generalidade dos artistas retira destes serviços, apesar de haver alguma ironia no facto de que estas grandes bandas são precisamente aquelas para quem a experiência até seria bastante positiva, e, por outro lado, o facto de estes serviços terem, de certa forma, desconstruído o conceito de álbum como uma coleção de temas com uma ordem e uma relação intrínseca, e promoverem, ao invés disso, a audição de temas isolados e fora do contexto que o artista idealizou. Enfim, apesar de eu pessoalmente partilhar de certa forma desta indignação, acho sinceramente que é uma guerra há muito perdida. Esta é a forma como as pessoas querem ter acesso à música hoje em dia, e nada vai mudar isso, muito menos a birra de meia dúzia de dinossauros como as novas gerações provavelmente os veem. Mas voltando ao estudo, o novo álbum com lançamento previsto para o próximo dia 30 irá chamar-se Fear Inoculum, e o tema título já foi entretanto disponibilizado como primeiro single de avanço. 
Todos os fãs já o ouviram pelo menos 20 vezes no dia em que saiu, mas eu não posso, como é óbvio, deixar de trazer aqui aquele que é um dos regressos mais aguardados de sempre. Vamos por isso ficar com o Stu e a novíssima Fear Inoculum.
avanço para o novo álbum do Stool, esta fantástica Fear Inoculum. Outra banda que também já por aqui passou algum tempo e que se prepara para editar um novo álbum são os suecos Opeth. O novo trabalho, o 13º da sua carreira, chama-se In Cauda Venenum e tem data de lançamento prevista para 27 de setembro. Este álbum irá ter a particularidade de ser lançado em duas versões, uma em sueco e outra em inglês. Uh, Michael Ackerfeld, o vocalista e mentor, achou que era importante que o conteúdo das letras fosse entendido por todos, apesar de ele considerar a versão sueca como sendo a definitiva. O novo álbum, a julgar pelos dois temas entretanto disponibilizados, parece seguir o fascinante caminho de exploração musical que os Opeth iniciaram há já três décadas e que faz deles, na minha opinião e de muitos, uma das mais surpreendentes e invariavelmente refrescantes bandas no panorama do metal e rock progressivo. Vamos por isso ficar com o mais recente tema de avanço para o um novo álbum, chama-se Dignity, na sua versão inglesa, mas vamos ouvir a versão sueca, intitulada Sveket's Prince, cuja tradução é The Prince of Deceit, ou Betrayal, ou em português O Príncipe do Engano ou da Traição. Enfim, o que quer que signifique exatamente é mais um grande tema dos fantásticos Opeth. Vamos a isso. <música> Oh, 
ouvimos Sveket Springs do novo álbum dos suecos Opeth, In Calda Veneno, com um lançamento previsto para daqui a sensivelmente um mês. E antes de passarmos à rubrica de cinema de hoje, há mais uma novidade que eu quero trazer, de um álbum que também aguardo com imensa expectativa e de um projeto que descobri muito recentemente. Chamam-se Ison, são suecos, à semelhança dos Opeth, e são o resultado da junção de duas almas que partilham a inspiração do drone, do black metal, do gótico e do shoegaze, e com um fascínio pelos planos astrais e pelo universo. É pelo menos assim que eles se autodescrevem. Concretamente, são um projeto de Daniel Anghit, membro do Scripple Black Phoenix, que ouvimos aqui há bastante tempo e que gravaram um dos meus álbuns preferidos de 2018, e Heike Langhans, a vocalista dos Draconian. A sua música é incrivelmente atmosférica e remete-nos invariavelmente para os temas da astronomia e do universo, o que já era por demais evidente no seu primeiro longa duração, Andromeda Skyline, cuja audição eu também recomendo vivamente. O tema que vamos ouvir foi o primeiro e único avanço para o novo álbum, Inner Space, que vai ser lançado precisamente amanhã, dia 25. Chama-se Radiance e tem também a participação de Neige, da banda de post-metal francesa Alceste. Vamos ficar então com os Eisen. Oh, 
estivemos com os suecos Ison e o fantástico tema Radiance do seu novo álbum Inner Space, que tem um lançamento agendado para amanhã, dia 25. E é agora a altura para falarmos um pouco de cinema, neste verão que, à semelhança de tantos outros, não nos tem trazido nada propriamente digno de nota. E por isso, desta vez, não vou dar o meu parecer sobre nenhum filme ou série de televisão recentes, mas sim, e por razões que serão porventura um pouco mais óbvias na segunda hora, fazer uma retrospectiva da filmografia de um realizador que me tem deslumbrado nos últimos anos, mas que continua a ser desconhecido por muitos e por isso mesmo já merecia que eu lhe fizesse um destaque especial. Chama-se Andrei Tviagintsev e com uma carreira de realizador que conta apenas com 16 anos e 5 longas metragens, já é considerado por muitos um dos melhores realizadores da atualidade. Apesar dessa opinião ser menos consensual na sua Rússia natal. E é muitas vezes comparado ao grande Andrei Tarkovsky, apesar da sua abordagem ser um pouco menos metafísica, mas as estruturas narrativas pouco convencionais e extremamente poéticas são sem dúvida semelhantes. O seu trabalho, e especialmente os, os três últimos filmes, são vistos como um comentário ao estado da Rússia moderna e uma visão particularmente sombria e desanimadora da mesma, que explora os temas do desequilíbrio económico e social, da corrupção e da insensibilidade e egoísmo. Na sua opinião, no entanto, não há uma intenção deliberada de espelhar o Estado do seu país, uma espécie de sinédoque em que as famílias que filmas estariam a representar a Rússia como um todo. Na verdade, e é algo que é patente logo nos primeiros dois trabalhos, mais intemporais e geograficamente indefinidos, o seu único objetivo é o de falar sobre a natureza humana, a falta de empatia e a forma como as pessoas usam os outros como ferramentas para atingir os seus objetivos, não havendo propriamente a intenção de se focar em qualquer problema político em particular. Mas isso não impediu, naturalmente, que fosse alvo de alguma suspeita por parte do Estado russo. A sua crescente proeminência e, em particular, o seu penúltimo filme, Leviathan, originaram reações inflamadas de alguns políticos devido à sua fixação com o tema da corrupção e o próprio Ministro da Cultura criticou duramente o retrato negativo da sociedade russa tão patente nesse filme. Zviagintsev reage com alguma indiferença a estas críticas e salienta a ironia de Leviathan, o mais criticado dos filmes, ter sido precisamente o único que teve apoio financeiro do Estado. Apesar de universalmente aclamado pela crítica, ele não tem ilusões sobre a possibilidade de ver o seu trabalho chegar a audiências mainstream. Os seus filmes, absolutamente irrepreensíveis, diga-se, carregam em si o pessimismo de um romance de Dostoevsky e é difícil ver neles um qualquer vislumbre de otimismo. Como ele próprio afirmava, não é de facto agradável olhar para um espelho e ver refletida uma imagem pouco atraente de nós próprios. As pessoas por vezes dizem-me que as personagens são forçadas, que pessoas assim não podem existir. E isso é precisamente o que acontece quando as pessoas se veem confrontadas com uma imagem desagradável. Mas felizmente, há pessoas que aceitam essa visão que eu ofereço e, como diz o provérbio russo, não podemos culpar o espelho quando o reflexo não é bonito ou agradável. Mesmo admitindo o seu pessimismo como artista, Zviagintsev vê-se como alguém que encara o futuro com otimismo, por muito paradoxal que isto possa parecer, e a força e a beleza profunda das imagens que nos mostra são, a meu ver, uma prova disso mesmo. Ele tem, aliás, um comentário que eu achei muito interessante numa entrevista que deu por altura do seu segundo filme, The Banishment, em que fala precisamente sobre o poder das imagens. Ele diz-nos o cinema e a arte em geral lidam essencialmente com imagens, não com declarações diretas. Uma imagem é sempre um mistério, é uma necessidade. A beleza de uma imagem está na sua incerteza, dá-nos uma vaga sensação de nos aproximarmos da verdade. E ele depois dá o exemplo da imagem de uma sala escura que, por um breve instante, é iluminada por um relâmpago. Nesse momento, tudo se torna momentaneamente visível e claro e percebemos o que se está a passar, o que é realmente aquela sala. Mas no momento seguinte o clarão desaparece e voltamos a ser confrontados com a escuridão, que está cheia de mistério. Mas naquele breve instante conseguimos perceber as interligações. E para ele, isto é um exemplo daquilo a que Aristóteles se referia quando falava da experiência de catarse. Experimentar o absurdo, o paradoxo, aquilo que está para além da nossa compreensão e que abre uma pequena fresta e ilumina o território escuro em que nos encontramos.
Filosofias à parte, eu queria só terminar com um muito breve resumo dos cinco trabalhos deste realizador. Eu vi os dois primeiros, que eram os que me faltavam, há muito pouco tempo e comprovei aquilo que já se tinha tornado mais ou menos óbvio para mim quando vi os outros três. Não há um único mau filme na carreira deste senhor ou sequer um filme menos bom. Para mim estão todos num patamar de excelência e mesmo aquilo que suscitou reações negativas por uma parte considerável da crítica, The Banishment, é para mim e para a generalidade dos espectadores, diga-se, uma obra extraordinária. Depois de uma carreira de oito anos como ator, o filme que marca a estreia de Dviagintsev como realizador, The Return, surge em 2003 e é uma história de passagem à maioridade, de perda e da inocência, de dois rapazes cujo pai esteve ausente durante 12 anos e um dia regressa à casa sem qualquer pré-aviso. Segue-se uma viagem entre os três em que a crueldade própria da adolescência vem ao de cima, bem como a complexa relação do povo russo com a autoridade, bem espelhada, no conflito entre os dois rapazes e o pai, que desconhecem por completo. Um filme incrível, com, com um desfecho surpreendente e que é, é, é quase difícil acreditar que é a primeira longa-metragem de um, de um realizador. Seguiu-se The Banishment, em 2007, o único argumento adaptado por Zviagintsev, que é um, um slow burn, com uma fotografia belíssima, que envolve uma família e uma série de segredos que a vão arruinar de uma forma devastadora. É como um puzzle fascinante que no final fica com algumas peças em falta, mas que resulta perfeitamente como um todo. Helena, de 2011, é o primeiro filme a ter por cenário a Rússia moderna e conta-nos a história de uma enfermeira da classe trabalhadora que casa com um idoso magnata, o que vai expor e espelhar o desequilíbrio económico na sociedade russa. Em 2014 surge Leviathan, o primeiro filme que, que eu vi de, de, de Zviagintsev, e que é uma espécie de western passado na tundra em que são investigadas as várias traições pessoais e políticas que contaminam a vida de uma pequena vila perpetuamente sob um manto de gelo e em que a sombra da corrupção está sempre presente. A mais recente longa-metragem deste realizador foi Loveless, candidata ao Oscar de melhor filme estrangeiro em 2018, e que aborda os eventos trágicos provocados pelo desaparecimento de uma criança no seio de uma relação caída num estado de crueldade e hostilidade. É mais um magistral comentário social à vida na Rússia moderna e à falta de compaixão e ligação entre as pessoas, e possui algumas das cenas mais emocionalmente devastadoras que vi no cinema nos últimos anos. Em suma, uma pequena, mas qualitativamente gigantesca filmografia que eu recomendo em absoluto e de forma integral, com a única ressalva de que se tratam todos eles de filmes trágicos e carregados de um pessimismo muito explícito, o que pode não ser do agrado de alguns. Mas assim é a natureza humana. Para terminar a nossa primeira hora e servir de alguma forma como introdução para a nossa convidada de hoje, eu não posso deixar de trazer um tema que eu sei que é muito especial para ela e para mim também, confesso. É uma raridade do nosso muito querido Jeff Buckley, um tema que nunca foi editado e que é um dueto com Elizabeth Fraser dos Cocteau Twins, com quem ele mantinha uma grande amizade. O que existe, na verdade, é apenas uma demo que, em determinada altura, alguém desencantou e divulgou, muito para o descontentamento de Liz Fraser, diga-se que não queria de forma alguma que este tema fosse conhecido por ser uh, extremamente pessoal e nunca ter sido gravado devidamente. Mas é um tema lindíssimo e, e, na minha opinião, ainda bem que o podemos ouvir, mesmo que numa forma algo inacabada. Chama-se All Flowers in Time Bend Towards the Sun. Jeff Buckley e Elizabeth Fraser. Baptism 
Bem-vindos de novo e chegados que estamos à nossa segunda hora. É tempo de apresentar a banda que hoje vai preencher a segunda parte do programa e que ocupa um lugar muito especial no meu vasto imaginário musical. Chamam-se I Am The Morning, são um duo de São Petersburgo, da Rússia, e acabam de lançar o seu quarto álbum, um trabalho de uma beleza extraordinária, que tem sido aclamado pela crítica e pelo público, que infelizmente ainda é apenas um pequeno nicho, e que é para mim pessoalmente dos melhores trabalhos que eu já ouvi este ano e um sério candidato a álbum do ano. Eu conheci-os sensivelmente a meio da sua carreira de já quase 10 anos e vi-os ao vivo pela primeira e única vez em 2016 no Festival Biprog em Barcelona. Eles infelizmente não fazem digressões muito extensas e raramente têm a possibilidade de visitar países mais periféricos, como é o caso do nosso. De qualquer forma, nessa altura tive a oportunidade de conhecer a vocalista, Mariana Semkina, que se revelou, para além de incrivelmente simpática, um artista que mantém uma notável proximidade e abertura para com os fãs. Entretanto, mantivemos algum contacto esporádico e voltámos a cruzar-nos em Barcelona nas edições seguintes do festival e há pouco tempo eu tive a ideia meio surreal de a convidar para ser entrevistada para o nosso programa, a quando do lançamento do novo álbum. Sinceramente, nunca pensei que isto pudesse efetivamente vir a acontecer, mas o facto é que ela aceitou fazê-lo e foi para mim um prazer indescritível ter tido a oportunidade de gravar uma conversa com ela que durou quase uma hora e meia e da qual vou apresentar alguns certos na edição de hoje, intercalados com temas do fantástico novo álbum intitulado The Bell. E não vou alongar mais, vou deixar a música deles e a conversa que tive com a Mariana falarem por si. Quero só referir que a versão integral da entrevista está já disponível também no meu site, onde habitualmente publico os podcasts do programa, e tem sensivelmente uma hora e vale muito a pena ouvi-la na íntegra. Vamos ficar então com I Am The Morning e também à conversa com a vocalista Mariana Semkina. Até já! Does not matter who are you going? 
I have the incredible pleasure of having with me today Mariana Semkina from Russian duo I Am The Morning, who have released just recently their wonderful and widely acclaimed new album called The Bell. Mariana, thank you so much for granting me this opportunity to talk to you, not just about the new album, but also about you as an artist and as a human being concerned about this crazy world we're living in, to put it mildly. It's quite a privilege, so thank you very much once again. Well, thank you for having me. I, I'm not sure if I'm going to be that exciting as you think, but uh, oh, I'm <laughs> I'll sure try to you do will. my best. <laughs> So I have to ask you, and I don't want to jump ahead too much as I want to talk about the new album in more detail shortly, but how are you feeling? I mean, the album came out two weeks ago as we record this to an impressive number of glowing reviews, completely deserved, I must say. So have you had the chance to take it all in and relish this moment? Uh, no, <laughs> I've been, I've been so busy with like all of the admin stuff around the band that I, it's actually a great disappointment to me because I would love to just pause for a second and embrace the moment and think about how amazing it is that the results of our work are finally available for everyone. Naturally. But, um, modern musician has so much responsibilities, uh, that it's just impossible to, Enjoy anything you're doing anymore. I'm being very existential right now, but <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> well, welcome to the club. So that kind of ties into the first actual question I wanted to ask you. But before that, let me just try and do a very brief retrospective of the last 10 years for those who haven't been following you. You are a self-taught singer and the owner of a beautiful voice. And back in 2010, you formed I Am The Morning with Gleb Koliadin, a virtuoso classical pianist. Your debut album came out two years later, and in the space of a little over six years, you released two more widely acclaimed studio albums, one live album and a recorded performance on Blu-ray last year, filmed at a beautiful location in Norway. You had names like Gavin Harrison and Colin Edwin from Porcupine Tree and Marius Duda from Riverside, featuring on your 2016 release, Lighthouse, which won Album of the Year in that year's Progressive Music Awards. You've collaborated just recently with Jordan Ruthers from Dream Theatre in his new solo album, and you have just released an extraordinary new album with I Am Morning called The Bell, which raises the bar once again in this genre of chamber prog, which I think we can say that you own, essentially. You are very original and unique sounding in this musical landscape that is sorely lacking in originality nowadays. And you've also been described many times as one of the most exciting new bands in the progressive scene. So, first of all, these are wonderful achievements and something you have all the right to be proud of. But it also begs the question, are you living the dream or is it not as simple as that? I don't believe in living a dream. I believe that once you achieve the dream that you thought you had, you already have different dreams. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's constantly chasing something that you are yet to achieve. But then when you're achieving that new thing, you're kind of looking for something else. I don't know. It's, uh, it's a constant search. And uh, I must say it's impressive how well prepared you are. And I wouldn't be able... <laughs> oh, please. I wouldn't be able to tell things about our band as good as you just did. Like, <laughs> Well, none of those were used to me, but <laughs> I wouldn't be able to recite our timeline as well as you. <laughs> 
So, yeah, my question had to do with this common duality between the dream of being a successful artist and the struggle that bands, especially smaller bands like yours, have to go through to, to kind of stay afloat. Or, in other words, when the pleasure of making art gradually turns into work, which is obviously less exciting. So, what was your strategy so far to try and maintain some sort of balance in, in this regard? Well, my strategy from the very beginning was to not uh, put too much pressure on my music career as of to paying the bills, because I do have a daily job in IT. Uh, and this is what actually makes sure that I have a roof above my head and food to eat. Right. And uh, what I'm asking from music is for it to actually pay for itself. But because the scale of our project grows, it becomes more and more difficult, but the band kind of grows too. So it's like this constant chase, what will win, like... Yeah, trying to find some sort of balance. Yeah, it, it's an exhausting work. It's overwhelming at times, but then you arrive to sort of a destination and you see how people appreciate the results. And it makes you feel kind of, I don't know, satisfied in a way or... It's very rewarding, I think. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, sometimes you can be just too tired to appreciate this in full, but... Uh, As is the case now, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not the fun person to have a conversation with right now because I'm just <laughs> so busy, so busy all the time and so kind of existential that, yeah... <laughs> it will probably it will probably get you like make you very depressed <laughs> <laughs> well i'm usually depressed enough already so don't worry so um take me back to the beginning how was it like growing up in russia or in other words how did the social context of your upbringing shape you as a person and, and eventually as an artist i think the main thing that I am getting out of there is this uncontrollable desire to leave this country <laughs> because um, the cultural context that I was growing up with was very, you know, limited mm -hmm. and very, very poor. So I did not have any friends that listened to the same music that I did. I did not have any friends that were interested in the same types of art that I was. And it was just very sad. And now with this newly acquired freedom to go to other countries, I'm embracing it all. And this is part of what influenced the bell so much, I think, is this complete overwhelming interest in uh, all things art and culture. So yeah, I was um, a very introspective teenager, a very closed, I mean, I was social, but then I didn't find satisfaction in the people I had around me because none of them really shared my interests. Yeah, I, I can certainly relate to that. Yeah, they were they were very lovely people, and I still remember them with like this nostalgic warmth. But uh, all of those discoveries that I made in like the the world of art and culture, I made all of that by myself, and I had no one to share them with. Um, maybe this is part of why I started writing music, is because this was some sort of a I don't know, a very good source of inspiration for myself and also something to give to, mm -hmm. um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, 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 it definitely does. And I'm sure that many of those listening can, can certainly relate to that. So then, how did you and Glab meet? Was it pure happenstance? Were you childhood friends or schoolmates? Or, or, or is there an exciting origin story that we don't know about? 
Uh, there is nothing exciting about us. <laughs> uh, no, we we couldn't have been school or childhood friends because I only moved to St. Petersburg uh, like fairly recently. And we met pretty soon after I moved cities and came here. I got a piano for my apartment uh, that I was renting back in the days. And uh, one of our common friends introduced us thinking that we might actually make a good combo. You know, because mm-hmm. his band was falling apart. My musical project was a wreck. <laughs> so we kind of got together. I invited him over for tea and he, he immediately saw the instrument, started playing and that was it. <laughs> As he does, yeah. Yeah, so um, we started writing together pretty much instantly. It, it all started like we wanted to warm up by playing covers and I think we covered Bjork or something like that. Uh, but uh, I think even on the first or second meeting, we already started writing songs that eventually were included into the first album that we recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very constructive social um, experience. Indeed, yeah. And I was precisely going to ask you about your creative process. So how did you find that common ground that eventually led to all this beautiful music you've made together? We don't really have much of a common ground except for our love for music and writing music yeah. because our backgrounds are completely different. Our interests are also entirely different and like our range of responsibilities is different. Our social circles are different. Everything is different. But um, it's amazing how we managed to click when it came to music because uh, for both him and myself, it's kind of a natural state of things to be writing. But for him, for him, it came, well, obviously he's like, he's extremely talented, but he was also educated to do so. Um, And for myself, it's just, it just comes out of nowhere. It's just a flow of subconsciousness, I guess. And innate talent, I would say. Well, uh, it questionable, <laughs> but it it works out. It works out really well together because uh, I'm a bit chaotic, but he's very structured and very logical thinking when it comes to music, and he understands everything what's going on, and I'm just kind of floating around. <laughs> you sometimes call him the mathematician, right? Sort of. Uh, it, it's I have to. Uh, make a disclaimer that everything that I say about the band, Gleb might have a completely opposite opinion on it. Certainly, yeah. Uh, so that's everything. Everything kind of said here is my opinion, like my personal, obviously, yeah, uh, side of things. Uh, yeah, but so lately we've been only working remotely because I've been out of the country a lot, mm-hmm. and even when I'm in the country, we don't really have this need to see each other that much. We pretty much exchange, you know, files online and just kind of work with whatever we have. That's becoming more and more common nowadays, isn't it? And I I wonder if that's in any way detrimental to the creative process. I think I think it's a great blessing and a curse at the same time because for me, music is supposed to be like a social experience as well. Yeah, there used to be this kind of idea that bands would get together and start jamming and things would spontaneously come out of that. Well, we do we do that too when we can, when we kind of we're when we're in the same place and we both have time because our schedules are kind of busy. And half, maybe one third of the material for the album came up this way, while us being in the room with an instrument and just kind of playing around. And then we just kind of um, add finishing touches online when he records his parts and I record my parts on top of his. Yeah. Um, but um, it gets more and more, you know, this uh, new world sort of thing and remote uh, work on music material. So he just sends me a lot of files 
because he has like this endless folders of his drafts and sketches because he's like unstoppable writing machine. Mm -hmm. And then I pick the ones that I like. So say the title track on this album was entirely written. So that was just, it was just like his sort of sketch, the piano part. Uh, And it made me so very sad. He started playing it to me, but I was like in the state of very bad depression. And it just was so sad that I just started crying every time he started playing it. He he was like, okay, I get it. I get it. (laughs) Uh, So he stopped suggesting we make it. And this was the last um, track added to the album when I kind of was in the mood and I got it. And I just, I I wrote all of the vocal parts from scratch, from start to finish of the song. And I just sent it over to him. And he was like, wow, I didn't think you're going to use this track. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I'm very proud of it, actually. I'm very happy with how it came out. I think it's very good. It is, definitely. You should be.
So let us talk about the new album for a bit. And the first thing that strikes you is, is the gorgeous artwork created by Konstantin Nagishkin, who's a friend of yours, right? Um, yeah, he's an old friend of ours. We've known him since ages ago because he, he was the only artist who ever did any like artwork for us, except for like all the graphic designers that we use for layouts and shirt mm -hmm. designs. But uh, all of the album art, that was all his uh, work. And I'm very pleased that we keep uh, to this scenario because I like the, you know, unity like that this feeling yeah there's there's definitely a mm. unity to it and I, and I appreciate that as well and it's an absolutely beautiful color and so for those who haven't seen it it depicts a kind of graveyard <laughs> a very beautiful one actually it, it's a bad it's a bad description of the album you should say the cover art is uh, watercolour, very colourful and very sunny with a lot of flowers. Indeed. I I'm sorry, you're absolutely <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Which also happens Which to be also a happens graveyard. Which also happens to be a graveyard, exactly. <laughs> so this grave in the cover art has a bell attached to it, the titular bell, which has nothing to do with our common idea of, of church tower bells at all, but something way more interesting and macabre. So... Can you tell us a little bit about it and what led to this being, let's say, the visible face of the album? Um, well, yeah, so uh, the bell depicted on the cover is a safety coffin bell, which was like um, a thing that existed in 19th century in both America and England, which I'm more interested in. And um, it was a precaution made for uh, people that were terribly, terribly afraid of being buried alive because... Uh, Thanks to Edgar Allan Poe, a lot of people exactly. got this strange phobia of being buried alive in their sleep. Yeah, he frequently approached this subject, namely in the premature burial and the fall of the House of Usher, amongst some other of his short stories, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was. Uh, he's quite amazing, actually. I he really is, enjoy yeah. his works. But um, so people came up with this with a lot of ideas, actually, against premature burials or also um, body snatchers. So basically, they had this uh, bell on their gravestone with a thread attached to their arm in a coffin. So if they wake up in the coffin and discover that they've been buried alive, they can ring a bell. And they were like special attendants on the cemeteries, making sure that... Like, Wait, so, yeah, I was going to ask you, so who was supposed to actually hear the bell ringing? Yeah, there were there, there were special cemetery attendants everywhere huh. uh, who were supposed to keep track of that and also the body snatchers, because that was like a very common problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I find it beautifully ironic, actually, that according to, well, the records, no one was actually saved by the safety coffin bell. Yeah. Yeah, but, that's the irony of it. Yeah, and I really love it. But we thought that this would be a very appropriate face for an album filled with stories of death and dying from Victorian England. Mm -hmm. And which would also at the same time translate this nice idea that no matter how bad you feel, and so it's never too late to call for help. Exactly. Basically, because, you know, um, we try to not be morbidly sad all the time. <laughs> There's a sliver of hope, at least. Yeah, we, we like this duality about everything we do. It's like multi-layered thing with a lot of meanings and senses and afterthoughts. Um, and it's something that I always enjoy in other people's music. It's just you keep discovering new things after like a hundredth listen. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing over here in the lyrics and in the music. Um, so, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think it's quite remarkable in, in the new album in particular, how everything came together in a, in a seemingly very focused way. And, and the end result is this concise and beautifully put together collection of songs wrapped in a lovely package with, with an incredible attention to every little detail. And, and what's also remarkable, and I noticed it right away with the very first song, Freak Show, is, is how the musical palette had expanded to incorporate all sorts of instrumentation and and experimentation. So uh, was there a conscious effort to approach composition and arrangement differently this time, or, or is this a natural evolution of the band's sound and, and the kind of sign of things to come? I think that the thing that makes uh, the per- the growth, the professional growth of the band noticeable is the personal growth of each member separately. Mm-hmm. So which is kind of natural for creative people because creative people, they never stop in their development. They keep searching for things. They keep learning new things, developing and broadening their horizons and mastering their skills and abilities. And as a result of this, we see how the the band keeps getting, well, maybe not better, but something else, something different. Definitely better. Uh, Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure there would be some people out there that would say that they don't enjoy the bell as much as they did the previous albums because the bell is more unconventional, I believe. It is, yeah. And it's it's completely unapologetic. As it should be, and and you have all the reason to be proud of it. It's it's the culmination of nearly 10 years of artistic growth, and and it shows. It's, It's a fantastic album. And it's also very profound thematically and about much more than the fear of being buried alive. <laughs> There's an overarching concept that deals with the themes of human cruelty, the pain it causes and different ways we respond to and cope with it. And it's also, and, and I'm quoting here from your own words in the press release, aesthetically based on themes taken from Victorian England's art and culture, but more in a way of turning our attention to the fact that, at its core, humankind isn't making much progress in terms of emotional maturity. And I'm not as well versed in the subject of Victorian England as you are, but I believe there are quite a few parallels between that era and and the present day, and and we'll get into that in a moment. But it's that last bit about emotional maturity that interests me particularly, and, and it's very timely, I would say, because I think we are failing miserably as a species to, to live up to our best ethical and moral values and, and those of respect and appreciation for each other that, that should by now be taken for granted, but which we seem to be evolving, or, or should I rather say devolving, further and further away from. So can you give me a bit of insight into how the Victorian themes played into your, at times very bleak, but still hopeful, take on, on the society of today? Um, well, so during my travels, I've been studying a lot of uh, like Victorian history and art, and uh, what appeared really really interesting to me is that our perception of Victorian people is very different from what they were actually like. And uh, I kept getting this feeling that modern people, modern society just wants to believe desperately how much progress they made, how much better they are than people that came before. Um, and this this arrogance and this kind of this condescending attitude yeah. just keeps keep, keeps bothering me so much and um, as it should as it should well I mean yeah there are like uh, undeniable progress that we've made in uh, certainly certainly yeah well like, yeah in technological 
progress and medicine and like everything, like a lot of, a lot of things. But uh, what actually matters is the attitude of people towards each other. Absolutely. And uh, how humane we are and uh, how kind we are to each other. And I'm kind of sort of noticing that we didn't come so far, like even... I, I always make this example of this like song that you mentioned before, The Freak Show. Yeah. It's, it's about the freak shows that people in 19th century used to have. Uh, so they went there to entertain themselves by looking at crippled people, say all sorts of all sorts of crippled people. And like it's almost like an obsession with the, these kind of things then. Yeah, Victorian society was very obsessed with all things kind of strange and morbid. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and and I realize that we we are very similar to this with our kind of like mass media obsession with yeah. the tragedies and yeah tragedy uh, and, and and misery and conflict and this sensationalistic disturbing manipulative grip on society which which is kind of a freak show in itself I would say yes it is so this was just one of the many many examples of that I that I that I've been thinking about and people just seem it seems like we are just the same people as we used to be only more arrogant and self-absorbed yes I, i agree and and it was also a time of great technological change which in turn has a profound impact on on society and with the appearance of, of railways and the telegraph for instance the the notion of an interconnected and globalized world starts to form and and i see a very clear parallel with, with what happened in the last couple of decades but now on a much bigger scale well they pretty much built our world for us everything that we are doing now well most of the things that we are doing now they were the first to do indeed so uh, i mean Yeah. Yeah. I just The thing is being a computer engineer and and I know you also work for an IT company as your day job. And in in my case having followed the world of technology very closely for for more than 30 years, I've always felt very hopeful about the role of technology in, in the progress and evolution of humankind. And, and and in particular, I've witnessed the birth of the internet as we know it and and we were all very idealistic at the time. We we genuinely believed it would eventually bring the whole world together in this noble quest for knowledge and equality. But While some of that is certainly true, or, or at least a little better, I think more than anything it paved the way for an exponential growth of hatred and disrespect. And, and I don't think we were ready for this at all, you know. To, to be connected on a global scale and having to deal on a daily basis with, with points of view that differ from our own, we, we were definitely not ready for that. I think the worst thing that came with internet is this seeming anonymity for people that are just so fulfilled with misery and anger that they just need to throw it into somebody else to kind of make feel a little bit better. This is this is like this is what I feel what is happening is with all of those people that kind of troll and harass people online and cause so much, you know, misery to the ones that are less thick-skinned, like, say, I'm not thick-skinned at all, um, is that because they're also sad and lonely and miserable, yeah, yeah. but they don't really have courage to actually go out and speak. Yeah, and, and, unless they are behind this veil of anonymity. Yeah, and this completely, that makes them unstoppable. There are no limits to what these people can do and say until they are like anonymous online and they feel safe behind their computer screen. Yeah, 
this is something that I keep thinking about and, and, and I can't help feeling disappointed with the way people interact socially nowadays in, in, in a world that is now seen almost exclusively in terms of black and white, where there's no longer a place for nuance or, or for simply not having an opinion. You're either with me or against me. That's, that's the prevalent mentality everywhere. No one seems to
So something that becomes very apparent once you look beneath the surface is that despite the inherent beauty of your music, you, you frequently tap into pretty dark and profound subject matters. The themes of dying and drowning frequently come up in your lyrics and obviously in a very poetic way, but many people wonder where, where does that fascination with death come from? Well, as I said, it's probably my depression manifests itself. Uh, which uh, is in a way, I guess, a coping mechanism because my mental health isn't great. Mm. Uh, so I'm just like taking it all and dumping it all on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't really know. I think this is partly something that I inherited from uh, the fact that I'm Russian. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you go read uh, some of like Russian classical literature, um, it's all over about misery and death and pain. And it never and it never really occurred to me that despite trying so hard to run away from this country, it's like rooted deep inside of me and inside the things that I write. And to be honest, I don't think that's the worst part of it. I think like mm. I don't have much against it. I'm fine. I'm I'm at peace with the fact that I'm Russian mm -hmm. and uh, I'm taking the best things out of it, which is also fascination with morbid subjects and uh, I guess my willingness to be writing about death. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a coping mechanism. And, and I, I recall this quote from the great James Baldwin, who said, it seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. This uh, kind of aligns really well with my life philosophy, which is like, what's the worth of having anything if you haven't earned it? Absolutely, yeah. So I guess I'm writing about death, about like a way of earning a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God, why am I so bleak? <laughs> oh, I'm more or less the same, to be honest. Well, your listeners are going to be entertained by two really depressed people talking to one another. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we already talked about how the new album explores the themes of human cruelty. And in the previous one, Lighthouse, you went deep into the subject of mental health. And that album resonated with me and, and I'm sure a lot of people out there because of that. Unfortunately, I think mental health is still a topic that is not talked about enough, or at least I feel that a lot of people are not aware of how widespread it is, or, or they simply dismiss it as something which it is not. And we were just talking about depression in this jokingly way, but it's extremely important that people have the notion that it affects an extraordinary number of people in every walk of life, and those that fall victim to depression and ultimately to suicide are not just a few famous people that you hear about in the news, but it's a worldwide issue that affects around 800,000 individuals every year. So I think you put it really well in an interview you gave not too long ago when you said, no matter how low you are or desperate you think your situation is, you can still call for help. But more than that, you have to call for help if you need it. Yeah, I think... Um I, I've been trying to encourage people to talk uh, for for quite a few years now. Like with Lighthouse, this was pretty much the main the main reason I went into the subject was that people if people that feel this way would see that someone else describes their feelings through music, they would feel less alone. Mm -hmm. This is something that music did to me when I was uh, fourteen or fifteen years old, when I desperately needed like someone to listen to, yeah. uh, someone who would listen, who would understand, and then I found solos in other bands. Yeah, um, and I wanted to kind of be this sort of companion for all of those that need 
company to deal with their struggles. But then I also, it's very important to remember that no one can help you unless you want to be helped. Precisely. And it's very important to make sure that you did all you could because like as much as it is important to seek help when you need it, it's also important to know that probably you're, you're going to be the best help for yourself. You just have to apply kind of, you know, effort to this and then you have to make sure that you really prepared to work very hard in order to get better indeed and, and it's also important to know that there is support out there oh there is always that it can reach out to there is always there is always support but uh you have to be strong and i mean even even when it comes to therapy say um mm -hmm. it, it's i discovered that it's an amazing thing i've been i've been like in therapy for years and it was one of the best decisions i've ever made in my life mm -hmm. um that it's a really, really important thing to realize that at this point you need help. So it's time to turn to a professional. But when you go to the professional, you have to be prepared to work very hard because it's not easy. Yeah. It, it will get worse before it will get better. Exactly. So, and there's always light. There's, there's always light and... So um, I can ramble about that for hours, so stop me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think what you just said is incredibly valuable. And, and I want to emphasize something you mentioned before, which is that you feel that the biggest impact you can have is through your music. And, and music is indeed a very powerful means to reach an enormous number of people. And it's clear to me that people identify themselves a lot with you and, and the things you sing and write about. And I am certainly one of them. So to have music as a way to spread this kind of message is, I think, a great privilege and, and extremely important. And ultimately, someone will find solace in that music and those words, just like you did at various points in your life. Oh, mm -hmm. 
So let me bring up the topic of being a woman in the music industry, or, or anywhere else for that matter. The truth is that despite recent developments that are hopefully leading to a long overdue change in perception and attitudes, we still live in a world where misogyny is woefully pervasive, where discrimination against women is still the norm, and seeing female artists in the realm of progressive rock in particular is still strangely perceived as an oddity, as an anomaly of sorts. And I must say that this has baffled me for decades, why men have this toxic and disrespectful behavior, which in a way goes back to the lack of emotional maturity that we talked about. I don't know if it was the fact that, thankfully, my upbringing has made me see everyone as equal in this world from a very early age, irrespective of gender, race or beliefs, but I've always found this persistence of misogyny in particular as something very hard to grasp. And if you had asked me 20 years ago if we would still be talking about this in 2019, I wouldn't believe you. Perhaps naively, I always thought that we would have grown up as a society when we were well into the 21st century. But alas, here we are. So, what has your experience been like in this regard during your time with I Am The Morning and, and your life in general? Well, I have to say that my mostly my experience was rather positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so, I mean, I can't say that I faced too many problems being a woman, but the ones that I have faced are completely like they drive me up the wall. Yeah. But I also have to say that I realize that men that have problem with women being in a band or in prog genre or in music industry in general, they're just deeply insecure. I think it's down to insecurity in the end. Yeah, I agree. And after realizing that, I stopped worrying about this too much. I mean, they can suit themselves. They can't really get to me. Um, most of people around me that I work with are very respectful because otherwise I wouldn't be working with them. Naturally. Sometimes there are, there are sometimes have some hiccups when I realize that I'm repeating the same thing for the fifth time to some guy because I'm a woman or uh, if there is a problem in some process, it's very difficult to me to have a conversation with someone if it's like a very, you know, sensitive subject because... Because a lot of men are still afraid of showing their feelings. No, no, that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that if someone is not doing their job properly and I'm telling them off... Oh, right. Uh, they would just dismiss me for being like an over-emotional woman or something like this. So say, say we had some troubles in like the business side of the band and I had to have like this very heated argument argument with someone because that's what that was the only way mm -hmm. like it took me years to resolve this problem and in the end I kind of I reached my limit and but the problem is I was completely dismissed for being a woman because like it's really it's really kind of bizarre and uh, it makes me very upset because how much longer do we need to be fighting for freaking equality it's like 21st century <sighs> so how important do you think role models are, both to new female artists and to the general perception towards women in music? I think it is very important because um, you need to have something in front of your eyes to know that everything is possible. So yeah, I agree. And especially for women, it's very important to see that there are like women out there that are successful in what they do, despite all of the misogynistic um patterns that are still existing in the society mm -hmm. um, and that no matter how hard everything seems to kind of hard work is going to conquer everything you just have to be really really stubborn yeah so do you see yourself as one as, as a role model for um, let's say a new generation of bands 
Well, I, I wouldn't ever call myself a role model because this would be, you know, immodest. Um, <laughs> I know that a lot, a lot of people are sending me messages kind of stating that I, I am for them, which is incredibly sweet and kind of encouraging too, because this this is very inspiring actually. And it kind of gives me energy to keep working as hard as I am working. There are a lot of like young frog or just bands here in Russia that look at uh, in the morning as a role model that demonstrates that everything is possible yeah. because when we just started it seemed like we are in this vacuum and this bubble of Russia, which is impossible to get out of. And yet we managed to do this, even though it took us years. If we were like originated from the UK, our career would have been so much easier. It would have been developing so much faster. Yeah, I can imagine. But I, I keep hearing this from young musicians in Russia that they are kind of following our steps, trying to get out of the country. And because they see us, they know that it is possible. And, um, it's a great reward for all of the hard work that we do. And a lot of girls are messaging me saying that they, they're looking at how hard I work and they know that they if they work hard, they're going to achieve their goals too. And it's just so... That's lovely. That's very sweet. Of course, like the first thing I tell them is to run as far as they can from music <laughs> industry, but they never listen. So before we wrap this up, I have one last question for you. Is there hope for humankind, do you think? Do I have to answer? You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know. I think it depends on us. Hmm. I think it's an open question which is undecided yet, and we have to be very careful with how we act in the next decade or like now yep. because everything is on stake and it's a little sad. But also, I guess, be that is as it may. Well, that's a sliver of hope, at least. Huh? Russian people, you know, Russian people do not have hope. So, <laughs> Mariana, this was great and a lot of fun. Um, so let me just wish you all the best for your future endeavors, which I will keep following very closely. Thank and you. I hope everyone listening will do the same. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Mariana. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. That was a pleasure. Crushing on